You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. After two decades of U.S. military involvement, the Taliban has retaken control of Afghanistan. The Biden administration continues to defend its decision to withdraw from the country, though the pace of the Taliban's advances has stunned many American and foreign officials. In this episode, Representative Michael McCall of Texas joins Washington Post Live to discuss the United States strategy in Afghanistan, the future of the country, and what the Taliban's victory means for the fight against terrorism. Let's listen. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter at The Post. The Taliban has quickly taken over Afghanistan just as U.S. troops were being withdrawn from the country after a 20-year war there. Of course, the harrowing images that we've been seeing in these last couple days have really created a number of national security as well as foreign policy ramifications that will likely influence a number of decisions by the United States and other countries in the weeks and potentially years to come. Here joining me today to talk about all of that is Congressman Michael McCall, a Republican from Texas who currently serves as the ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh Thank you, Mariana. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, it's definitely a busy time, and I know that you are trying to get briefed and get as much information as possible. There's just been minute-by-minute developments as each day has gone on, and and I just wanted to ask you and let our viewers know, what's the latest that you know from the administration, what they're doing on the ground there to just really try and expedite and and evacuate as many Americans as well as uh, Afghan interpreters who have been helping us throughout these years? Right. The conditions on the ground as I speak are that the airport is now secure. Uh, It was not uh, overnight, but it is secure now. Uh, Civilian flights and military are are going out in and out of the airport. Um, They are prioritizing American citizens first um, and then uh, our allied, uh, NATO allied uh, citizens. And then from there, our Afghan partners, uh, like the interpreters who served with our combat forces uh, that I've been talking about that well for the entire summer, uh, that we need to morally, we have an obligation to protect them uh, and get them out safely before the Taliban gets to them. So today, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, was briefing the press and he had made mention that the administration is now negotiating with the Taliban, trying to find a date, likely the end of the month, to try and get as many people out, both Americans and those who have, the Afghans who have helped us. Um, It was interesting to hear from him. He didn't necessarily commit when reporters pressed him on, you know, if, if we can't get out everyone, every American, especially by the end of the month, whether U.S. troops will stay longer. I'm curious, have you heard from the administration about their decision on that? And do you think that the administration right now should be taking the Taliban's word and trusting them? I don't think you can ever trust the Taliban. I think they've demonstrated that. I. I was always skeptical of these negotiations with the Taliban. Obviously, they were fruitless, and now they have taken over the country, which is very uh, disturbing. Um, I I would say that uh, I'd urge the administration uh, over the summer months when I got the intelligence community briefings uh, and State Department, there were very different types of briefings. The intelligence community had a very grim assessment of the conditions on the ground that they were deteriorating very rapidly. 
um, and that the Taliban would most likely take over the country and the Afghan forces without our air power uh, could not survive. Uh, and that's precisely what has happened. I think the intelligence community got it right. I think the State Department and the politicos and the White House got it wrong uh, that we could negotiate with the Taliban. Now we are stuck in a situation where we're begging the Taliban to please do not uh, violate our perimeter at this airport as we evacuate. Um, I don't know how long the Taliban's going to uh, stay, uh, keep with that agreement. I don't even know if we have an agreement, uh, to be honest with you. And um, the sad fact is, I think we will get the American citizens out of there and our NATO ally citizens. Uh, as for our Afghan partners, um, Mariana, um, I think many of them are already in the bullseye of the Taliban uh, that are not in Kabul near the airport. Um, and they're most likely to be killed as we pled with the administration. Chairman Meeks and I actually sent a letter on this, you know, back early in the summer to prioritize them, get them out of country uh, in a safer country where they can be properly processed, the SIV, special immigrant visa applications processed, um, so we could save their lives. And we, we, had, we promised them that we would. And now I, I predict that uh, you're going to see a majority of them uh, at the hands of the Taliban being, uh, being killed. So, Congressman, you've been mentioning, I actually was listening to the last time you were on this program just in the spring. So even before the summer when you were making these calls, you had made similar predictions that there, if there was a hasty withdrawal, something like this would have happened. So given that, I, I actually want to get your reaction to Biden's speech yesterday. You have previously said, even before that speech, that, quote, he will own the fallout and that he has blood on his hands. Do you think that the president actually accepted responsibility in his speech yesterday? What were your takeaways? I don't normally engage in that kind of rhetoric, but I feel so passionate about this. And I did forewarn the administration and it fell on deaf ears. And I think his top generals did too, and the intelligence community itself. And by the way, I think they were both against this decision to have a precipitous withdrawal without conditions on a timeline. And I think that's one of the major failures. But once the decision was made, for God's sakes, at least plan and prepare and have a strategy to get people out of there. Um, I thought the speech um, honestly doubled down. Um, he said the buck stops here, which I said on Sunday, on one of the Sunday uh, shows, the buck stops with him. But then he started to blame everybody else and not accept responsibility for this decision that he made, that he owns and he is personally responsible for. Blaming the Afghan military, blaming the intelligence community, uh, blaming the prior administration. Um, this was his decision, uh, he owns it. And I do think that a lot of people as a consequence of the uh, ill-conceived and ill-planned mission to evacuate uh, are going to be um, killed at the hands of the Taliban. You mentioned that there were conditions. If you know, if if you were president, that you would have had some conditions drawn up to make sure that a withdrawal was done well and responsibly. Can you elaborate on what on what conditions you believe were necessary, and maybe things that are necessary now? And thank you, yeah, for that question. I. 
you know, I, I chaired Homeland, top Republican on foreign affairs, and was a federal prosecutor, counterterrorism, and studied this for a while. I, I think when we uh, pulled out of Iraq completely, we saw the rise of the caliphate in ISIS, and then we saw the external operations to kill Americans in the homeland. Um, I was in the White House urging President Trump at that time to keep a residual force in Syria um, for stability. We had a very light footprint in Afghanistan, 2,500 troops. Now, we have far more in South Korea and Germany. Um, we had 6,500 NATO. It stabilized the country, but it also provided air cover to the Afghan army and logistics and intelligence uh, so that we could respond if the Taliban got aggressive. Um, and instead, um, and this is what his top generals were advising, that if you're going to do this, do it conditions-based. Uh, if you look at the February agreement that's been called into question, uh, two major provisions have been violated. One, uh, the Taliban never cut their ties with al-Qaeda. In fact, I would argue there are more uh, al-Qaeda in Afghanistan today than prior to 9-11. Secondly, they agreed not to attack the provincial capitals. They obviously violated that. Uh, I, I talked to National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. What was the thinking inside the White House? They thought they had to work with the Taliban to get a transitional government. I'm not necessarily sure negotiating with the Taliban. I've talked to Zal Khalizad, the special envoy negotiating. Um, I, I was not very optimistic about that route. Uh, but I will say, I, I don't think the former president would have done what President Biden did. And, and this is why. Now, O'Brien told me that when they talked about consequences of a complete withdrawal, uh, non-conditions-based, um, that it could be another Saigon. And, and at, the, at that time, President Trump said, I do not want another Saigon on my watch. I think, and I certainly don't think he would agree to unconditional surrender <clears throat> to the Taliban and watch the black veil sweep across that country, uh, taking it back to 20 years ago pre 9-11. Now we can all speculate about what may or may not have been done, but what we can say for certain is that this decision was made by this president with a very a lack of planning and preparation. Um, and it is a, I believe it's gonna be a stain on the presidency. Uh, I do believe he has blood on his hands. And as I've often said, it's an unmitigated disaster of epic proportions, which will have long-term ramifications for our national security. You mentioned boots on the ground. Of course, the president in his speech yesterday doubled down and said that they wouldn't have made a difference had they stayed in Afghanistan, even if it was a smaller footprint. You obviously disagree with that. Again, if if you were able to you know, be the president or have the presidency or have him listen to you and those boots on the ground were able to stay, how many would be necessary and what would the mission have and also, how long would they have to stay there? Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, you know, the prior administration uh, pulled it down to about 2,500. And I think that is <clears throat> that is the bare minimum that you would need. And the 6,500 NATO combined with that. The, the story people aren't talking about, though, is our intelligence capability um, completely going dark. Um, we have no way to identify threats in the region and we have no capability to respond. I, I asked the administration to get these interpreters out, but also our ISR capability, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance 
capabilities have been completely wiped out. When Bagram Air Base fell, or when it was transferred to the Afghans, now it's fallen to the Taliban. Um, <clears throat> all of that intelligence capability was gone. Now that the embassy has shut down, we have no eyes and ears on the ground. So what does that mean? It means we can't see what is happening in Afghanistan or with Al-Qaeda, any potential threats to the homeland. And, and even beyond that, in the region, what most importantly, that capability gave us eyes and ears on Russia, China, and Iran. This is a victory for our adversaries like Russia, China, Iran, a victory for the Taliban who's going to celebrate the 20th anniversary on 9-11, probably raise their jihadist flag over the U.S. embassy, uh, and it's emboldening our enemies and weakening our, our allied uh, friendships. And I, I predict that, uh, that it's going to become a, a terrorist safe haven again, and we're going to be looking at um, potential external operations uh, to hit Americans you know, once again, without that intelligence capability there, um, we, it's a big strategic loss uh, of, of, you know, uh, just, um, we just, it's dark. We, we can't see anything there. And I think that's why the Secretary of Defense and a lot of our intelligence community were against this decision. Yeah, you mentioned that void of intelligence. And uh, it's interesting because several months ago with the former U.S. Ambassador uh, Ryan Crocker, you actually wrote an op-ed in May basically saying that the U.S., quote, must urgently step up agreements with neighboring countries to provide the U.S. with intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities. So do you know if the U.S. was actively involved with other countries in the region to make sure there was some kind of surveillance, any kind of intelligence, you seem to suggest that that is actually not the case if we're completely dark right now. Yeah, and Ambassador Crocker is a dear friend of mine. We wrote that op-ed together in the New York Times. And what we decided was, okay, the decision's been made. We disagree with it, but it's been made. So what is our best advice to the administration constructively moving forward? And we did lay out guiding principles in that op-ed. One was to, um, to get the interpreters and Afghan partners out of country in a safer country to be processed. But the second, which is perhaps more important, is to establish ISR capabilities in a country surrounding Afghanistan. This is not a country uh, that's on next to water like Vietnam. This is a country in the middle of nowhere with our adversaries surrounding it. So ISR capability is very difficult if you're out of country. There was talk about Uzbekistan. Um, I've seen no progress from the administration uh, on this front. I don't know how we're going to be able to see inside of Afghanistan, much less have this intelligence capability we have with Russia, China, and, and Iran. And China has already recognized the legitimacy of the Taliban, as has Russia, China will be moving in. There are rare earth minerals in China. Um, I don't know why we didn't work with the Afghans to develop that, but we never did. And um, the Taliban knows about this because Khalilzad brought it up in his discussions. And now you have China going in, mining these rare earth minerals, uh, and they're the winner. We're the loser, and the Afghan people and the women and the girls in Afghanistan are the losers. 
And the Taliban will have a huge windfall profit from this that they'll put into terrorist financing. So I actually wanted to bring in a viewer question. It's from Charlotte Tarver from Canada, actually. She says and asks, what do you believe will happen in Afghanistan in the next month? Well, I mean, the worst, uh, and I predicted this, as you know, all summer, based upon my intelligence community assessments, uh, that it would fall. Uh, and I think the nightmare is, is unfolding before our very eyes. I think in the next month, the best we can do is get as many people out of there right now, out of that airport as we possibly can. Um, then we will evacuate from the airport. Uh, the Taliban will own and rule the country. They will have their own style of governance. Sharia law will blanket the country. And Mariana, the, the people I fear the most, in addition to our partners who will be executed, uh, at the hands of the Taliban, the, the, the population I fear for the most are the women and the girls. I mean, we've already had the Taliban go to, um, you know, the uh, imams asking for girls between the age of 14 to 45 to be given, handed over to be uh, married to Taliban warlords, some as young as 12 years old. Uh, they will be under a dark, uh, a dark shadow of Sharia law. They won't have any rights. They treat women like property. They will not be able to be have the right to be educated. They will not serve in public office. They will have to have the full burqa covering. They will be essentially enslaved by the Taliban. And many of these women have never experienced Taliban rule because it's been 20 years. But now the clock has gone backwards and the human rights violations are, are gonna be extraordinary. Uh, I hope the international community can stand up to this. But when you have China and Russia on the United Nations uh, making, uh, having votes to make decisions about the fate of the Taliban in Afghanistan, I think the only vital answer we have left, as the Pentagon has told me now, is ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the homeland. You talk about the impending probably humanitarian crisis with women and girls, not to mention other things that could be happening under Taliban rule. I, you know, a lot of the conversation has been about what negatively can happen in that country, given the fact that the U.S. has invested almost 20 years in Afghanistan. You have visited many a time. What has been accomplished there? What is, what is, is there a win of any kind, in your opinion? You know, and that's the hardest thing, Mariana, the veterans. Uh, and I'm going across my district right now and I'm seeing them. Some don't have their legs. Some have PTSD. Many lost friends over there. Um, was it worth it? Um, I want to say it, it, it was. Uh, do we make mistakes? Yeah. I think we made several um, mistakes over time. Uh, there are a lot of crisis hotlines for the veterans who um, really have a sense of despair right now about their experience in Afghanistan as they watch the Taliban take over the country. That should never have happened because it will just, in, in, it will empower them. Um, weakness invites aggression. And I think the world's gonna be a more dangerous place because of this decision. Uh, over 20 years, we have a lot of lessons learned and the War College has been studying this. I don't think occupying a country 
that's been occupied for thousands of years by some of the biggest nations in the world unsuccessfully uh, was perhaps the best way to accomplish this. I think a, a counterterrorism mission from the start would have been the way to go. I talked to General Wald, who led the charge and tour of war. Think how different history would be if we had just gotten bin Laden at that point in time. It may have been a mission accomplished moment, and we probably wouldn't have diverted ourselves into Iraq, and it would have saved a generation. But we can't change the past. We have to learn from the past. And that's why I believe that if we can't have this light footprint in Afghanistan, that we could have a counterterrorism mission close to Afghanistan with this ISR capability to identify threats and take them out when necessary. Unfortunately, the people of Afghanistan are now under Taliban rule, which is going to be barbaric. Um, and I feel for them. When you consider 80 to 100,000 Taliban in a country of about 38 million, it's hard to believe uh, that they are going to be the ruling class. And they're going to take that country back to the 7th century AD, and the human rights violations are going to be extraordinary. Well, Congressman, you know, as someone who has been in the foreign policy, national security space for a long time, there's many different topics that we can touch on in this conversation. But one of them I actually wanted to talk to you about was is China's role in the COVID-19 pandemic. But I did want to start with some breaking news actually out of your own state. The governor actually just announced that he has tested positive for COVID. He has been fully vaccinated, says he has no symptoms, but it just is another person, it seems like, who is has, you know, faced the Delta variant. Many people, even if they're fully vaccinated, getting reinfected. Um, what is your takeaway from that announcement and also his leadership as governor in the last couple months on this specific subject? Well, you know, the mask issue side, I know that gets very controversial. I think People like myself who got vaccinated, and I, I got vaccinated um, one of the first, you know, when they offered it to us, I got the vaccine and I sent it out on social media and encouraged other people to get vaccinated. The more vaccinated our population is, the safer. Now, the, now the governor was vaccinated and he came down with the, the, the variant. Uh, but we do know that if you've been vaccinated, that the severity is far less than it would be if you were not vaccinated. So. A lot of the, the people who are getting this are, have not been vaccinated, and they will develop antibodies, then probably their herd immunity, if you will. But I, I've been a, a big advocate. The government can't force you, but I believe that uh, getting the vaccine is important. Um, timely, uh, the FDA is now announcing a, a, a third booster vaccine because we don't know how long the antibodies will last. Um, you know, my heart goes out to the governor and I, I, I know the severity will not be as intense because he was vaccinated, but it also raises the question about getting the booster um, vaccine. And I believe that that's where we're headed the next step because we just don't know how long the protection from the vaccine will last. We do know that this uh, virus is a very contagious one, particularly the, the variant. Um, and it uh, it is it will mutate over time, just like the flu, and we'll probably have to get annual vaccines, just like we get the flu uh, shot. 
And I wanted to squeeze in one final question. I know earlier this month, you released an addendum to a report that you continue to uh, research on COVID-19 and its origins, specifically now claiming that it did originate from a Chinese lab in Wuhan. Um, what is the evidence that you can point to that? And also wanted to get your take. We've heard from uh, President Joe Biden that this could be a possibility. I know an intelligence review is on the way for him in just the next couple of weeks. Are you aware of potential recommendations that the intelligence community will be making to the president about the origins of COVID? Yeah, my understanding is that it will not be conclusive, but it will raise the possibility. Uh, that it came from the lab. Um, I, and I have several reasons. Uh, in my report, I said a preponderance of the evidence. As a federal prosecutor for many years, I treated this like a like a I would a prosecution. And we got a lot of the testimony, but a lot of evidence that has come forward, you know, since the last uh, report I issued. And you know, I, I'd say this at my own risk, because the Chinese Communist Party has been attacking me for this report both in print uh, and their foreign minister and on their propaganda television. But it seems to me that the type of research being done uh, at that lab, uh, it, it was not a naturally occurring virus. They're trying to create a super SARS-like virus through genetic modification with the eye towards creating a vaccine to protect uh, from it. The problem is they were doing this in very unsafe uh, labs with not following proper safety protocols, uh, some at BSL-2 labs. Um, these bats are a thousand miles away where they got the specimen. If it's naturally occurring, how could it naturally occur in Wuhan when the bats are a thousand miles away? But they take the specimens and then they would genetically modify them into a more contagious, virulent, um, you know, transmissible virus. It's, it's a very dangerous game. And if you're going to be doing gain of function research, you need to be doing it in the right safety conditions. Our State Department warned it was not safe. Um, their own Chinese CDC raised questions about the safety protocols. And then in September, the Wuhan lab took their genetic sequencing database offline in the middle of the night, uh, September the 12th. And then they implemented all these security uh, procedures. Um, then the, the head, the, uh, the POA military expert on Kim Bio came over uh, and took over the lab. They silenced the doctors talking about a SARS-like virus and detained them. Uh, they destroyed lab samples. And, and then uh, we had the World Military Games where 9,000 athletes came in from all over the world uh, describing Wuhan as a lockdown city. Uh, many of these athletes returning uh, around the world with uh, flu-like symptoms consistent with COVID. And by the way, three of the researchers at the lab had the same you know, phenomenon. Uh, I think that was the first super spreader. We also have satellite imagery that shows the heavy volume of traffic in September um, to the hospitals uh, surrounding the lab you know, it, it, itself. Um, and then the, the papers on uh, the gen genetic manipulation by Peter Dozik and Dr. Xi, the bat lady, um, very much confirmed the type of research they were doing at that lab. And what I found also interesting is that NIH funding went to Peter Dozik's Echo Health to go into uh, the Wuhan lab uh, itself. Uh, the most conclusive evidence we would have is if, you know, when the, the Chinese Communist Party came after me 
my responsibilities will then turn over the genetic sequencing database that you uh, that you basically took offline September the 12th, because that would prove that what they were uh, manipulating the lab, whether or not it is the COVID uh, virus, that would be as a prosecutor, the smoking gun. Right now we have a lot of circumstantial. You don't cover something up if you don't have something to hide. And I think that to me, the cover up here was extraordinary. And they were trying to hide something because they knew what was happening at that lab. And they had a diversion, it happened at the wet market, it didn't happen at the wet market. Um, it was not naturally occurring. Uh, in my judgment, it was a genetically modified uh, virus. Um, you look at SARS, there were 10,000 people that died. You look at this virus, we have almost 5 million people dead. Well, Congressman, I could ask you so many more questions on this subject and as there's so many others out there as well, but unfortunately our time has wrapped up. Thank you so much again for joining us on a, a very busy news day. Um, thank you again. Thanks, Mariana. And I want to thank the Washington Post uh, for having me. I really appreciate it. And I want to also thank all of our viewers for tuning in today. Of course, if you want to see what else the Washington Post is coming up with in terms of live events, you can go to WashingtonPost.com. Sorry, WashingtonPostLive.com. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Mariana Sotomayor. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.